and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is October 20th, 2022. The public hearing on the proposed withdrawal of the preterm birth prevention drug McKenna is over, and the final decision is now in the hands of FDA Commissioner Robert Califf and Chief Scientist Mananji Bumpus. Sue, you and Sarah covered the hearing for us. It looks like the FDA got the result that they wanted. Well, CEDAR, uh, the Center for Drugs, got the result that it wanted. It was CEDAR's uh, proposal to withdraw the drug. FDA's Office of the Commissioner is sort of the, uh, the judge in the matter. But yes, the, uh, the advisory committee voted 14 to 1 to withdraw the drug, not to keep the drug on the market while another study is conducted. And that outcome was a lot less favorable for COVIS than a 2019 advisory committee vote at which um, nine of 16 panelists said to withdraw and the other seven said to keep it on the market while another study is done. So certainly COVIS did not get the result it wanted. It had a what could be reasonably be, reasonably be viewed as a favorable panel more than half of whom had clinical expertise in maternal fetal medicine or perinatology, which is, you know, um, COVIS wanted a substantial portion of the panel to have that sort of expertise, um, but it didn't help. And it didn't help um, for a number of reasons. I think that the um, COVIS had presented all this subset, subgroup, post-hoc analysis in its efforts to try to identify a group that was at high risk for preterm birth and that McKenna seemed likely to benefit. And it was just lots of different cuts of the data and it just was not persuasive to the panel. They said, you know, this is, it would be great if these work out, but these are hypothesis generating and too often you know subsets of subsets don't pan out in the end when you do another study good so. i was going to say fda even got or sorry sue cedar <laughs> <laughs> um sue is the fda versus cedar police <laughs> this story but uh, cedar even got um Covis to admit sort of on the record at the hearing, essentially that, you know, the types of analyses it did were, are, were hypothesis sort of generating, generating only in terms of sort of the level of scientific rigor and so forth and what they could show. Right. And that these would not support specifically a new indication. Um, um, Covis in its briefing document had proposed to, quote, narrow the indication for McKenna to women who were at particularly high risk of preterm birth and also to conduct a study in this sort of same subgroup while the drug stayed on the market for this new indication. Now at the hearing, they kind of waffled a little bit on this narrowing of the indication. They, didn't, they said it didn't necessarily have to be a new indication. It could simply be a limitation of use or additional data added in the clinical trial section or a dear doctor letter. But sort of any way you cut it, um, the panel did not think there was the evidence to support that at this time. And the other argument Covis made was that they had some survey data from patients and, and providers indicating that um, 
providers would be more likely to recommend patients enroll in a clinical trial of McKenna if it were still on the market. And um, this argument did not fly at all with the committee. Most of the committee members said it agreed it would be harder to enroll a new trial if the drug were still on the market for the same indication that the new trial was studying. What would be the incentive of a pregnant woman at risk for preterm birth to enroll in a trial where she could possibly get a placebo instead of just getting the injection um, through a prescription? That really deflated uh, Covis's argument in that regard. Yes, there was clinical equipoise to conduct a new study, the committee said, but you can't have both clinical equipoise and continued marketing of the same indication. So, Sue, did uh, COAS have a chance here? They they got the committee they wanted. Uh, you know, was it just they didn't quite make their case strongly enough, or did they just really just not have a case? I think they just really don't have a case. They just don't have the data. Everybody on the committee, a lot of people on the committee were said they were very disappointed that that trial 003, also known as Prolong, which was the confirmatory trial, that it showed nothing on its face. And COVIS had to slice and dice the data in such a way and using a new endpoint to try to find some modicum of benefit in this high risk group. And it just wasn't cutting it for the committee. Was there anything here in in COVIS's arguments that you think, you know, be like, yeah, it didn't fly with with the committee, maybe, and and obviously didn't fly with Cedar, but you know, when the commissioner and the chief scientists kind of get in the room with their attorneys and whoever else they have that's going to try and figure out what to do. I mean, is there anything in there that maybe causes them to think twice about, you know, you know how to how to resolve this? I think the only thing that's causing anyone to think twice is the fact that there is no other drug approved to prevent preterm birth. And that's a big problem and preterm birth is a big problem, especially for some high-risk groups, including um, Black women and women of um, <clears throat> Native American ancestry. And so these are underserved populations, and they're, the concern that has been espoused is that you're taking a drug away from these underserved populations. However, to counter that, there's also the argument of, well, you're giving the, uh, these underserved populations a drug that for which efficacy has not been demonstrated. So it may not be doing them any good at all, and all it is is exposing them to the known risks of the drug. I, I think that's a consideration, and I think that the commissioner and chief scientists will take that into consideration, but I really would be stunned if they came out with any decision other than withdrawing the drug. Yeah, the other thing I thought maybe COVIS had a tiny leg to stand on was this idea that the accelerated approval statute is permissive and that, right, it 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 doesn't require FDA to pull a drug if that fail, you know, failed its confirmatory study. It simply allows FDA to do it if it if it if it wants to, but I I thought FDA made, you know, a pretty good case pushing back on that here that again like there's just there's nothing sort of redeeming left right now for covis absent new data on 
Makina, um, you know, Kovas had brought up a few situations where, y- you know, it seemed like drugs were going to get withdrawn, and but FDA let them on the market, but FDA pointed out some key differences, like, you know, drugs that hadn't confirmed their clinical benefit, but had still enough confirmatory study, you know, still showing the same benefit on the surrogate, which, you know, Kovas's you know, post-market study did not show the same benefit on the surrogate endpoint or, you know, a clinical benefit. So I think that was a big thing, you know, and in other cases, I think, you know, there was more clearly a population or group of people, right, more limited that FDA felt like you could leave a product on the market for. I just they they didn't quite fit the mold of the examples they wanted to sort of make FDA think they fit into. Right. And one of those examples was Arisa, which was a cancer drug. And FDA allowed that to stay on the market in a very narrow population. Um, I believe that the population was, you know, people who were already benefiting from it, meaning people who um, whose tumors were stri- sh- shrinking while they were on it. So there's some objective evidence there of benefit. And even under those circumstances, I think the drug only stayed on the market with that limitation for about a year before it came off the market and more studies were done. And then it went back on the market in a much more narrowed, genetically defined population. Sarah, I also liked your um, your analysis of like Peter Stein's big speech there. Um, uh, talking about, you know, kind of like FDA saying, you know, we're flexible and we're willing to be flexible, but there are like, basically there's a limit to how fle- how much we can bend something to get it in through the door, I guess is what, what he was saying. Right. I mean, so, you know, Sue before ahead of the hearing did a story, we may have talked about it on the podcast last week, I think, um, about how, you know, Covis tried to use some of FDA's own words and speeches related to other drugs to try and argue that FDA had sort of a legal obligation here to, um, you know, be flexible and follow regulatory flexibility, um, mentioning, um, you know, the recent, Billy Dunn's recent um, speech at the the FDA Advisory Committee for the ALS drug um, that just got approved. And then um, mentioning some comments Rick Pazder has made about, you know, a failed trial doesn't necessarily mean a failed drug. And I thought then Stein's closing remarks at the hearing did a good job sort of responding to that argument, um, basically saying, first of all, like, we already have exercised (laughs) regulatory flexibility for you guys. Part of that was we gave you accelerated approval <laughs> and he sort of went through, some, you know, um, some of the things about the trial that the drug was granted accelerated approval on that were not, you know, ideal or, you know, maybe the perfect example of a study that FDA would like to grant accelerated approval on, but yet they were still willing to be flexible and kind of give them that benefit of the doubt at that, you know, there is some uncertainty and that certain uncertainty may point in their favor of a, you know, a a drug with a good risk benefit profile. And he's basically saying, kind of was like saying, now you're asking for regulatory flexibility on, again, what we were talking about earlier on this hypothesis generating, you know, 
subset of subset data that's that's just not you know scientifically you know a move that fda can support and said that you know that would just set a troubling precedent um you know they they can't they couldn't approve an initial drug initial drug approval on something like that so i think it was just helpful to see you know fda because we've talked a little bit about with the amlic situation you know it gets a little bit confusing when FDA talks about being flexible and like what, how consistent, you know, you have to be there in terms of being a regulator and following those rules of law, like where can they give for companies, where can't they give? And I thought at least in this situation, he, he Stein did a good, you know, sort of speech kind of outlining some of the boundaries <laughs> FDA has to think about and follow and placing that in the context of sort of like science and how the science and data, you know, might or might not support, you know, some flexibility. Yeah, in the uh, the Amlic situation, the the company, you know, has a ongoing trial, which may answer, you know, some concerns that people uh, people have. Obviously, the uh, uh, FDA didn't grant accelerated approval there, it granted uh, regular approval, so it's a little uh, Different, but I'm I'm wondering, you know, what position would Cobus be in if, in addition to sort of kind of, um, you know, uh, trying to sort of fight this through a, a formal hearing, they had actually started the trial they say they're going to uh, to do. I, you know, I feel that you know, if there were sort of data still being gathered, it would be a very different uh, conversation uh, being had on uh, um, on whether or not the uh, the drug should be pulled. So it uh, might be less into a uh, a future company that's going to uh, try and fight the fight one of these uh, uh, accelerated approval withdrawals out is that you should start the study you uh, you say you'll do, and uh, that may uh, help postpone things even longer. Well, but what, it is not what Covis has said time and again is that it, it kept trying to meet with FDA after the 2019 advisory committee. It kept asking for meetings to discuss real world studies and possible placebo controlled studies, either in the U.S. or elsewhere. And that FDA declined to meet with it because it, the matter was still under consideration. Huh. Well, from FDA's point of view, you know, you can see they were deciding whether or not they should try to withdraw it. So you can see where maybe they wouldn't want to meet with COVIS during that interim because they were going based upon what the 2019 advisory committee did. From COVIS's perspective, you can see them not wanting to make a big investment in a new placebo-controlled trial if it doesn't it doesn't if the design of it would not satisfy fda sure that's a catch-22 for the company there yeah that's a... the other thing about the study they're proposing to conduct now if fda lets them keep it on the market is that it's not a um you know it's i i i, I wonder if they proposed i i still don't think they would <laughs> have changed the outcome of the committee yesterday or fda's opinion but you know, they're not proposing a new study that would um, be designed to test for clinical benefit. They're going for an intermediate clinical endpoint. They want to basically focus on looking at the more cl hard clinical outcome in an observational study, which just seems like, again, to me, if you're sort of in hot water with a regulatory agency proposing an observational study for the key thing you were supposed to confirm in a large randomized trial already just doesn't look great on paper to me, I think. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, as Sue also wrote about, um, 
for a company that supposedly really believes in this drug, they were not committed to to running it if FDA does pull the product from the market. And again, that there's arguing there would be all these enrollment issues, but you would still think if you're really that invested in it, you know, you might have a little bit more commitment to, um, you know, really doing that study if you really believe in the hypothesis. So looking forward here a little bit, and I'm going to get to, you know, a couple of things here looking forward, but um, I know one of the things I at least I thought I remember there was there were some issues mentioned about compounding of hydroxyprogesterone caprote, which this had been a largely compounded drug before it became it was approved the first time and became McKenna. But is I mean, did they did they give any sense? Did the FDA or Cedar give any kind of hints on what they're going to do regarding compounding if you know, I mean, if, if this if this gets withdrawn, I mean, can they can it still be compounded? I guess it's an unapproved drug, so you really might not be able to. I don't, is there any sense on that, what happens then? Well, they certainly did not give a clear answer. Um, <laughs> this question was asked by Covis's attorney of Cedar, and basically the response that came back from the Cedar lawyer was, "It depends," and that, that response <laughs> came back multiple times. Um, it depends on whether a compounded product would meet certain conditions under the FDNC Act. And um, there was a lot of back and forth about this, but I, I, don't, I don't know if Sarah agrees, no real clear answer on what would happen if McKenna is withdrawn and what the status would be of the ability to compound 17P. I, I, yeah, no, I definitely agree. They did not want to directly answer that question. And um, because of the way they were sort of dancing around it, it's hard to know if FDA knows what they want to do and just didn't want to bring it up or if they really are not sure. I mean, maybe it's a se separate, you know, group at the agency that's responsible for that and they would have been stepping on their toes or their legal judgment. Um, and, you know, that was, I thought actually, you know, if you assume that FDA would leave the drug, sorry, I'm trying to phrase this correctly. If you would assume that if FDA pulls McKenna, but compounding of, you know, 17P can still occur, um, at least for a certain amount of time, because as, um, you know, counsel for COVID said, it would probably take FDA a, um, a certain amount of time to go through the um, do not compound process, even if that did happen. You know, I do think to me, that's a reasonably compelling argument, argument to say like, well, if you're going to leave it on via compounding, which people would argue is, you know, not as, you know, leave certain like, quality manufacturing kind of control gap sometimes that would make you prefer, you know, the consistency of a um, FDA approved drug. Like I thought that was a reasonably strong argument on Covis's behalf. Um, so you, you would, so, you know, in a way, I think that would have been a place where I thought FDA could have done better at responding to it, but you know, the, the advisor who, um, voted to keep the drug on the market. That was one of the main things she cited. So obviously it impacted somebody, but not, you know, a lot of people. And in terms of Cedar's position, the idea that compounded 17P 
is going to be used or is being used now even in Cedar's view, there is no efficacy evidence for use of that. Efficacy has not been demonstrated for McKenna and it's not been demonstrated for compounding products. So it's their hope that if McKenna does get withdrawn, that will send a very loud and clear message to the clinical community. The agency does not believe this to be an efficacious treatment to prevent preterm birth, be it compounded or approved product. Yeah, it's just an interesting, it's an interesting question to ask because we all know that these things don't filter through to the clinical community with the speed that, you know, the FDA and probably a lot of other people would hope. So, you know, if, if, the, you know, if, if it comes down to, I can't get it, I can't get it, but if you go down the street to the compounder, he'll do it for you. You just wonder how long kind of that goes on. And, you know, in the back of your mind, you wonder if maybe you could, you could gather some data through there, through that, through that. But, you know, again, if it's a, it's an unapproved drug that FDA doesn't think has any efficacy, you know, what, how are you, how could you, how could you actually get, get clinical data from, you know, through that route anyway? And, and I'm certainly not an expert in this area, but that would raise the question for me of, okay, if McKenna gets pulled and you're a clinician and you give somebody, you're giving people a compounded drug, what kind of liability risk is that for the clinician? Mm -hmm. oh, and, and who's going to pay has for come it? come out and yeah. said, this drug is not effective. We're withdrawing the, what was the approved drug. And you'll never, yeah, the patients will have to pay for it out of pocket, most likely, because insurance wouldn't cover it. And and then you might be on the hook if there's some kind of safety issue. Yeah, it's a, there's all kinds of more questions that come up if something like that goes on. I think Covis had cited some data that between certain years, and I can't remember what the years were, there were 26 recalls of compounded 17p for a variety of issues and that included sterility to add that risk on top of an fda declaration that this is not effective for the use you're using it for you know i think that just creates some liability risk for providers and then of course the other more broader discussion here is the future of accelerated approval overall and kind of what the McKenna experience sort of brings to this. Um, we, we've talked a few times on this podcast about how the withdrawal process is very, very long. I, what are we up? Is it three years, Sue, you, I think? Uh, three we're up years to? since the advisory committee voted that it should be withdrawn. Yes. So we're through three years and the clock is still ticking. And now we heard uh, FDA Commissioner Robert Califf um, teleconference in Europe this week that industry is not meeting the needs, the need in terms of producing confirmatory evidence. He said that given the technology that's available, evidence generation is a fraction of what it needs to be. So, you know, we all know he likes to talk about how the ev evidence generation system needs to be reformed, but do you think that was kind of a little call out to industry to kind of, you know, think about how, how they're doing things here? Absolutely. I think it was timed well with the McKenna hearing that was going on at the same time. He referred to the McKenna hearing and the whole withdrawal process as, quote, laborious, which I found amusing as 
Sarah and I were sitting here watching this roughly 17 hour meeting over three days. Yeah, I mean, and we've talked before about, you know, FDA certainly trying to make a push to get more companies to have their confirmatory trials started, um, you know, before the accelerated approval, because a big issue companies often say is they, they wind up with enrollment issues because, again, like what came up with the um, COVID situation is, you know, people are saying, well, why would somebody agree to be randomized to placebo if they see a drug as FDA approved. Um, and, you know, I think that's a, a broader issue that wasn't what isn't just about whether COVIS could conduct their, you know, their next confirmatory study. This is something that happens all the time with accelerated approval is if it's not, you know, enrolled prior to that, you know, the studies drag on. Makina um, was an example of where the study, I think, was something like four years past when it, FDA had asked for it to be completed. Um, and so that's a big problem, right? Because your, um, you know, patients are being put at risk of all these, you know, negative events with the drug without knowing if the benefit is real for much longer than FDA would like. Um, and then, of course, you have um, the financial burden, which came up just array a little bit at the advisory committee and some of the public um, comments. But, you know, this is a fairly expensive drug. A recent OIG report showed that between 2018 and 2021, Medicaid alone spent $700 million on it. Um, there's tension there, I think, as well in terms of spending a lot of money for something that is not fully proven. Yeah, high profile stuff like this and uh, 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 as you of course, not the same situation exactly, but, you know, a, uh, an accelerated approval uh, um, drug sort of kind of you know puts a highlight on uh, questions with the uh, the pathway, but there are uh, a large number of uh, drugs where uh, um, the uh, the studies just kind of drag on and uh, um, uh, you know either uh, get a negative result and nothing happens, or uh, you just sort of never get a result. And uh, you know we've seen over the past uh, few years uh, um, the the oncology shop at uh, FDA taking a uh, um, uh, much more uh, um, active stand on sort of getting these dangling uh, indications uh, um, withdrawn, and uh, um, you know with these other two uh, um, headline-grabbing uh, events, uh, McKenna and uh, Edgehelm, I would be surprised if there weren't some uh, um, you know real legislative uh, um, uh, measures put into the uh, um, whatever um, you know I was was going to say or you know. Most of the year, I was saying the uh, user fee uh, uh, reauthorization package. Now there's going to be some sort of kind of, I guess, broader public health, you know, post-election uh, lame duck legislative uh, um, soup that's uh, um, that may come forward. But uh, you know, as uh, um, as has been said, sort of, you know, FDA would like the authority to require that uh, studies be ongoing before an accelerated approval is uh, is granted. That seems a pretty uh, um, straightforward reform uh, um, that uh, hasn't been uh, um, really embraced by industry, but uh, um, it's uh, um, it's probably something that the uh, the agency could make good use of. And, uh, um, you know, I, I would uh, expect if, uh, if anything passes, that'll be in it. So. But, you know, I think the agency also hasn't helped itself in some of its, helped its case in some of its decisions. I mean, look at Adjuhelm. It approved that as a surprise under accelerated approval with no not even a draft protocol 
for a confirmatory trial. And then it gave them nine years to complete the confirmatory trial. So there was, you know, there was no inkling that a trial was had just started or was even starting soon. I was going to say, I think that um, FDA would like to paint industry as the, you know, the big sort of problem in accelerated approval, but there have been a lot of academics who studied this who would say it's much more of a mutual sort of symbiotic relationship that has gone a little haywire at times because, yes, Rick Pastor has taken um, a lot of initiative to deal with these dangling, as he calls them, cancer accelerated approvals in recent years, but up until this has happened, you know, you could point to lots and lots of data and examples where FDA has not really done much to get companies to, you know, complete their trials in a faster manner where they have let drugs stay on the market that ha may have done another trial that again showed it worked on a surrogate, but they never actually really, you know, showed the clinical benefit that is supposed to be the ultimate, you know, test of the drug. So, I mean, I think like FDA has tried to say like the problems with accelerated approval are the exception, not the rule. And that a, and a lot of times it's working just fine. I think there are critics of FDA that would disagree. So there's sort of like in terms of like accelerated approval reform, I think there's like a range of, you know, how far various parties want to take it. And FDA is certainly not like the most extreme, I guess, um, in terms of where it would want to go. Well, and one of the one of the decisions you have to make when you see a failed trial is, do you want to do what it takes to get it off the market? And, you know, one, one of the, you know, I mean, three years and we're still going uh, on this one. And, you know, the, the evidence was clearly there that it, you know, that there, you know, there's, there wasn't a, a lack of, there was a lack of benefit. So, you know, what, one of the things that they, that had been brought up was trying to speed up the withdrawal process. And, you know, you could argue whether the proposals were, would actually, you know, make a big dent in that. But I mean, do you think, you know, this hearing was kind of like a for, came at a fortuitous time, given that, you know, these issues are going to come up in another few weeks? I mean, at least create some momentum to kind of streamline the process? I just yeah. have my doubts that, that anything's actually going to get done this year in terms of accelerated approval legislatively. I don't know. I do think like this being in the this story being in like the headlines of all the major newspapers and so forth, you know, maybe puts it a little bit more on the attention of lawmakers radars who might not otherwise be paying attention to it and you know mckenna um you know it checks all the boxes of like a you know of things where you can point to oh it's an example of reform here in terms of the trial took way too long it's an example of reform here in terms of look how long it's taken fda to get it you know off the market and it just lingers here you know again while it's not directly related to fda's authority i think again the issues of how much the price of makina went went up when it became an approved drug from when it was being compounded and those issues don't help the company or sorry don't help sort of the whole situation either when you hear this story and you think of accelerated approval reform so even though pricing is sort of outside the realm of fda it gets tied into this conversation a lot we know like medicaid programs in particular have argued they shouldn't have to pay as much and should get higher rebates for accelerated approval drugs 
So I think there's there's potential. It's just, you know, a matter of like, you never know how much Congress can do until they do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you never know if like they're going to be in a situation where, you know, there's going to be so much the likelihood like there's like a health just a health bill that gets done in Congress at the end of this year, I think is like slim. So you're talking like, can this get into a bigger kind of Christmas tree somehow, like spending bill or something like that? And the politics of that are can be so complicated and so outside the realm of, you know, just this sort of FDA land, um, you know, it can be really hard to predict what there will be room for. Yeah, it's a, you know, it, it's a really interesting, uh, really interesting subject. And, and, you know, before we move away from this, I just want to say once again, great job, Sue and Sarah, on covering this. I mean, it was, you know, just uh, yeoman's work. It was, a, you know, really interesting subject. And, you know, I, I know this is not going away. We're going to be waiting. We're waiting for the final decision now, whenever that comes and changes to the accelerated approval pathway. So, you know, just a really cool thing and, and something that, you know, well, we'll keep it's the, the the gift that continues to give, I guess. <laughs> I realized I've been covering this drug for 16 years. Wow. And I really hope it's not I'm not covering it for another 16 years. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, we're going to look at a comment that continues to concern the pharma industry four years after it was uttered. In 2018, then Cedar Director Janet Woodcock was asked about FDA enforcing issues with comparative claims and advertising. Woodcock said that the FDA was wary of wading into the First Amendment issues and was primarily concerned about advertising violations where there may be a safety concern. And she said companies could, quote, duke it out over whether, for example, one, one acne drug works faster than another one. Well, fast forward to this week, Catherine Gray, the director of the FDA's Office of Prescription Drug Promotion, tried to clarify that remark when she was asked about it, saying the FDA does consider comparative claims and enforcement matters and argued that Woodcock's comment was sometimes taken out of context. Gray also said that the FDA wants comparative claims to have data backing them up. So as the one who reported the original Duke it out comment in 2018, I'm excited that this is still resonating now <laughs> all these years later. But, you know, OPDP sometimes gets, gets questioned about the low number of enforcement letters that it's sent out over the years. You know, does something like this kind of work as a, you know, a warning maybe to industry that the FDA continues to look closely at these issues? I mean, is there, do you, do you feel like there's sentiment now that this is kind of under the radar still or anything like that? Well, certainly, you know, it helps to say, you know, you better watch out. Otherwise, you're going to get, uh, um, uh, you know, a letter from uh, from us, you know, the uh, um, uh, saying we don't particularly uh, worry about this kind of stuff does sort of uh, seem to suggest that uh, it's OK to do it. So uh, to the extent that the uh, um, agency feels they have some sort of kind of bully pulpit where they can, uh, um, you know, encourage behavior that, uh, you know, perhaps they can't. Uh, Directly encouraged through letters because uh, you know they're concerned about uh, you know losing on uh, free speech grounds in, in court if uh, um, they get challenged. The uh, um, the the podium policy aspects of it are certainly uh, um, you know still alive and well. But as you noted, Derek, that uh, it's hard to say sort of kind of whether or not uh, uh, comparative claims are uh, you know now an enforcement uh, trend or had been an enforcement trend uh, even after. Uh, uh, Dr. Woodcock comments because the FDA has really, uh, um, you know, uh, 
tighten the spigot on uh, the number of uh, advertising letters it sends. And there's just there's been a real trickle over the past uh, the past few years. So uh, it's it's hard to say as we're going to what uh, what's the focus of attention for them aside from uh, not wanting to lose in court. The other thing that was interesting about that story was the uh, the admission by the Department of Justice that they could act on comparative claims problems in the FDA space as well. Maybe that's more of the, you know, more of the, maybe that would resonate more than saying that the FDA could send a letter. Yeah. And uh, Brendan, another story uh, looking at uh, FTC saying that, uh, you know, uh, they might be getting uh, more into uh, RX claims, especially about uh, endorsements and the, um, and the like, you know, traditionally sort of kind of, they've uh, stayed out of the uh, uh, pharmaceutical lane and left that to FDA. But uh, um uh, uh, they they maybe were getting more uh, um, more enthusiastic about uh, um, that kind of advertising enforcement. Uh, they would probably be subject to the same uh, First Amendment worries that uh, seem to have hobbled FDA of uh, um, of late. But uh, um, you know, it's not uh, um, uh, that uh, OPTP is the only uh, game in town if you're trying to uh, um, uh, play it safe in terms of compliance. Yeah. Well. Th- Another interesting issue, and uh, on that on that note, that the that the various federal agencies could be coming for you, uh, we'll say that's all for this week. Um, <laughs> for more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.